This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork, Devonshire Square. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and today's show is a chat about the news. I'm joined by Nigel Walsh. How are you today, Nigel? I have my voice back. I'm not sure that's good news or bad news, but it's my voice is back. <laughs> well, it's good news for the news show, I can tell you that much. Um, we're also joined by some lovely guests, all of whom are making return visits. So first up, we have Leah Noninger, Research Analyst at Business Insider Intelligence. How are you today, Leah? I'm very good, thank you. Very happy to be here again. Thank you for coming back. Um, we also have James York, founder at Worry and Peace. How are you doing, James? I'm very good indeed. Thank you for having me back as well. Uh, into our new offices as well. I don't think either of you visited these new offices before. No. And last, by no means least, we have Arslan Hanani, Head of Market Management at Zurich. How are you today, Arslan? I'm very well. Thank you for having me back. Brilliant. So um, without further ado, let's get on with the news. So the first story today is that Urban Jungle launches Netflix for insurance. So the home insurance insurtech has revealed a new £5 monthly fixed rate renters insurance product underwritten by Ergo, which it described as the Netflix for insurance. So the £5 fee is the starting price, um, and Urban Jungle also offers the options for customers to take fully comprehensive cover if they wish, with transparently priced add-ons such as out-of-home cover. It's a fully flexible pay-as-you-go policy, charges no interest, and allows policyholders to renew their cover on a monthly basis. So the idea is it's kind of as a pay-as-you-go. Um, um, there are apparently zero charges for changes and cancellations. And um, as you would expect from an insurtech, you can buy a policy online in a couple of minutes. Um, so we actually spoke to Jimmy Williams, uh, Urban Jungle CEO, to, to get his um, take on the product. So next up, we have an interview with Jimmy Williams, CEO and co-founder of Urban Jungle. How are you today, Jimmy? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. No worries. So could you start off by telling us a little bit about what Urban Jungle does? Yes. Uh, so Urban Jungle is a fully digital insurance provider and we're really focused on renters. So we, we do um, contents and related insurance for the UK's growing population of renters. And I hear you have uh, an exciting new product launch recently. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so we've been kind of trading in the market for a couple of years now and we spend a lot of time talking to our customers about what does and doesn't work about contents insurance. And we found that lots of people really found it unaffordable and kind of inflexible and quite hard to use. Um, so what we, we've done is gone to, back to the drawing board and, and kind of reinvented a, a contents insurance product 100% for renters and made it fully flexible, uh, much more affordable. Uh, and we've broken it down so you can just just add what you need and, and not have what you don't need. So some of the you know most important features are it's a monthly policy, not an annual policy. You can flex it anytime you like. You can you can switch it on, switch it off, um, add add cover for your phone, take your phone off, add a housemate, remove a housemate, and that's all easy to do and and uh, free to do online. So quite different to kind of classic uh, content insurance that's out there. Brilliant. And and is it available over the UK or is it just in certain cities for now? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's. Um, Available nationwide. We have lots of customers at, all over the country. We tend to kind of, you know, given as you might expect with the name, tend to be a little bit uh, more urban focused. So uh, most of our customers are, are in the UK cities, but probably um, more more like the top UK's top 50 cities rather than, you know, the, the top five or 10. 
So, uh, you know, we, we thought about how our product can be really relevant in, in those smaller cities as well as, you know, this isn't just a London thing. Brilliant. Okay. Well, um, exciting times. Thank you very much for joining us today, Jimmy. And um, we look forward to having you on the show in the future. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks very much for having me. So um, now we've had Jimmy's view on it. What do we think in the room, ladies and gents? Is this interesting? Is this a new kind of model? So I I think so the lemonade model, the five pounds, five dollars a month is really interesting. And I think we've done enough spot checks on guests in the past or audiences that we've been in to say young folks that are renting in London, have you got insurance? The answer surprisingly comes back as no time and time again, which is my bigger worry. I think the ABI came out something a while back saying one in the four people don't have contents insurance. And I think this is a, a good attempt at trying to address it. I do still worry, though, the convenience of this. Will people opt for this at five quid a month versus go for that extra cup of coffee or beer or a glass of wine or whatever it may be? So what problem is it solving other than the convenience problem? So so they um, Urban Jungle did their own survey um, and they looked at a thousand UK renters, which isn't a huge sample, but it's it depends where they where they were looking, et cetera, et cetera. But they found that 77% of the people they spoke to didn't have contents insurance. Wow. And that 30% of those people said it's because they couldn't afford it. So I, I guess that kind of goes some way to answering your question. But I guess there's two really interesting things here, right? One is that target market of urban renters, so sort of a low premium, lower, a smaller product that's more convenient. And the other is about, does this kind of a concept of a monthly subscription work? I, th- I mean, personally, I think I think it's fantastic. I think this is the way the future should be. But... I think there's also a very fine balance of does it become too simple and too cheap and doesn't provide enough cover or does it become too comprehensive? And and I hope this is the first iteration of many, but I'm quite excited to see what they come up with because I think think this is the way insurance should be operated going forward. Randomly, I had a debate yesterday online. Um, I was doing a quote for insurance, which I, I then went and bought. And I went to one of the aggregator sites and they actually advertised it based on the amount of time it took. And a home insurance quote was like eight minutes and a life insurance quote was three minutes. And I got my, I get all upset on a Sunday for some reason about life insurance taking three minutes. It was, it felt like too quick for, for what you were doing. But then it got, the whole debate got into value versus price. So for the sake of five quid a month, you might as well just go do it and get the cover. But then do you actually appreciate what you've got versus what you've not got? Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. That's a very interesting product because I think websites like um, Spare Room have made it so easy for people to rent and like also to switch homes that I think insurance should definitely follow suit and make it available for people to get coverage on a monthly basis rather than committing to a full year. Yeah, no, I think actually to, to your point there as well, we're, we're used to, I suppose, um, set periods of like rental periods of 12 months, 24 months, whatever. But um, the way that the government's actually pushing is whether that won't be the case anymore. You'll have longer periods, shorter periods, and there are different types of renters, you know, uh, rental agreements out there. So uh, as they said, it makes perfect sense for it to match, you know, for them to match up like that. I think what I'd be interested to see is it going a step further and like urban jungle partnering with spare room so that I just pay 200 pounds a week and it gives me insurance and it gives me my gas bill and it gives me rent. Uh, it gives me a roof over my head. I, I think this is a really interesting model. I, I actually know an entrepreneur that started a business where she effectively buys the tenancy of, of a, a rental that's got multiple rooms and she chops it up into co-sharing sort of micro flats yeah. and then rents them out individually on a flexible basis. And I think this is really zeitgeisty. It really hits the fact that 
living styles are changing and people are very flexible. My only concern is obviously uh, insurance is about time commitment. You're not going to see a loss or uh, effectively think about it behaviorally from a customer's point of view. One month of five quid, they're not going to see any value back from that in terms of their approach to the pricing. We already have a commoditization issue. Is this really creating that kind of time commitment that um, that buyers need to to have as well to to look at their risk profile over time and see how it affects them and how the price works for but them as you well? You build on it and you keep going. Okay, if I'm going to rent a room, what I, what and I keep going back to embedded in invisible insurance, I'm going to get shot on it one day. But it feels like all these things just get embedded and make my life as convenient as possible. Why go through the hassle of go through an AST on the tenancy, go through your gas safety, go through your checking, go through your checkout process. One of my guys is having a, a big hoo-ha right now because the checkout process is a pain in the, in the yin-yangs and they've got photographs and they're not comp- it's just not right and there's it's this friction in places friction doesn't need to be in insurance is just another worry but they never bother bother with in the first place yeah i mean i i think yeah i think you're right i think that there's probably an extra piece here which is something to do with either kind of invisible insurance but on that line you then have to think about what about the trend for transparency so whilst people do like the idea of paying 200 pounds a week and it covering everything you have to be sure to break that out for people because then otherwise you go background in that circle of like estate agents fees you know charging you 142 pounds for services which is actually printing a piece it? of paper yeah or, or the same is true of package bank accounts when the fca said we're gonna look at bundled accounts and say what do you actually get and are you um, overcovered multiple times for having the same thing. And I think the same is, is is the same challenge insurers will have when they get to this invisible or embedded nature. And I think you interviewed the guy from Cover Genius a while back, where they integ- integrate at the e-commerce level as opposed to the customer level, which I think is really fascinating. And I think I th- I think the insurance industry has that problem today. Actually, I mean, if you think of travel insurance as a product, most of us probably have three or four different policies. Some of which we don't even know about. You'll have a corporate policy, a credit card embedded policy. You'll have one coming out of where you bought your ticket, whatever it is. So, how if I'm all for making it simple and making it easy, but there is that line of when does it become too much, and when does when are you overinsured? And I think that's why I'm so excited about Urban Jungle, because it'll be interesting to see what their next product is and how they manage that risk. I guess it's rolling monthly as well. I mean, funny enough, we're on this comparison site because we're looking at travel insurance and I look for my multiple lines of cover and, and then I, lo and behold, they all run out the week before we go on holiday this year. It's like, great, I'll go and look for another one. Um, but if you get rolling monthly, it might be quite interesting about how you then turn it on and turn it off as you would with Trove or any of the other services accordingly. Can I, look, let me ask this question. So, if you wanted to insure the people around this table, your house for five pounds a month, no questions asked, would you trust that you have all the right cover that you need? Well, I mean, I would I would want to see the T's and C's and I would hope that their T's and C's, I haven't seen Urban Jungles, but I hope they're much along the principle of somebody like Bought by Many, where it's, you know, six pages and a seven-year-old can understand it. So I'd want to know this is what you're covered and this is what you're covered for. But... But, and it is a big but, I understand what excess means. I understand what minimum cover means. I understand that, like, my laptop is covered in the house, but the minute I take it out of the house, it's not covered. And what use is that for a laptop? Are you going down the route of it's too cheap, therefore it can't be true? Not too cheap, necessarily. But I feel like if you try to get down to the lowest common denominator of a product, of this is the absolute minimum cover you need, maybe where there's a risk of people thinking that they have cover for things or cover for situations that they may actually not have, yeah, right? I mean, Leah, you're probably the youngest person in the room. 
would you? I'm youngest, surely. <laughs> Nigel, <laughs> would you would you do something like this, like among your friendship group? You know, I know again, you work in financial services is a bit different. Yeah. But like, do you think your friends would do this? Yeah, definitely. I think especially because it is five pounds a month, that it's a very attractive offer for them, and also that everything can be on uh, can be done online as well. But then I guess, yeah, what you mentioned before, that you have to like actually read through the terms of conditions and make sure that you understand what is insured. And I guess by making it so easy, people could get into it that they might just buy the coverage without even getting into how much they're covered for and like when exactly they're covered. So I think there is an issue with getting insured so easily. Dare I ask, do you have insurance today? Sorry? Do, do I, dare I ask, do you have insurance today? <laughs> I don't have full insurance in my flat, but for parts for my most important valuable content. Okay, that's, that's progress, <laughs> yes, though. That's, that's progress. Yeah, yes. when you and I spoke ago and you had money, we're making yeah. progress. I guess one other thing here that, that's interesting, and one of the guys last week had a change of circumstance in uh, his life uh, and was complaining about the number of charges he made for changes to his policy that had no impact in premium, but had an impact on the charge they made. I think it was like 25 quid a pop for the, you know, for the phone call in and then 25 quid again to make the, the second change where Jimmy here has got zero charges for changes and cancellations. That's yeah. quite interesting. Lemonade do that as well. Like when you go on and you want to add like, they they very much tailor the same market. So you get engaged. So you want to add an engagement ring. So your policy may change because you've added an engagement ring. But first things first, you get engaged, you add your partner. Second, you add your engagement ring and you can do it all through the app. And that in and of itself doesn't cost you anything. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue with um, having no administration costs is that you bear the cost of any changes. So, you know, that old adage of time on customer, it, it sounds great at the same time, but will it make business sense when they scale? Because you're going to get people that want to speak to you. You're going to get people that are demanding that. And if you don't respond to them and only offer that digital service, we've all had that with digital service providers before. It's frustrating when a Google or a Facebook don't have a phone number. So th there's not much meat on the bone there for me in terms of the product pricing. But And, and you were asking about the terms. I had a skim through it. It's 29 pages. Mm. Um, the, the problem that um, My Urban Jungle have got is the same as every insure tech. They're having to use an insurer that's not going to let them compress and condense the terms and wording in their own kind of, if they were creating it themselves in their own kind of light. So they still have that barrier to get through. But I, I think, you know, I kind of agree with the, the argument that the, the price point's probably a bit keen, but at the same time, it could be an entry-level product and we could see three or four more, you know, adding... Well, we've got a couple of others on the site if you look at gadget and yeah. shared yeah. property yeah. and whatever else. So they're there. And I, generally, I really like what Jimmy's up to and the team were there. I like the idea. I guess the other question, I, and I'm seeing this more and more as I guess the market matures, and we see this in the banking side, I guess, with, you know, freeze my card. How replicable is this from a Zurich or someone else? If Aviva said we want to do five quid a month or Zurich wanted to do it, I ignoring the legacy system challenge, and Sarah's looking in a really funny way right now, how easy would it be to do? So I was in a room full of insurers last week and talking them through some, um, some just some interesting insure techs. They just wanted an insight into kind of like some of the players in the ecosystem. They didn't even want kind of like what should we do and to a person they went that's great we can't do that oh, so I, I mean so it, whether they can or can't is not the point the attitude we can't do that because xyz is is your first hurdle like it's your if, if your people internally are going oh that looks great but we'd have to go through compliance and then there's that person and this it's thing speed to market again right it's, yeah it's so, also you know if you've got unproven claims lines how do you actually budget for the potential claims if you're then having to get your premium with on no the drift and not up front. You know, I've got a delegated authority with an insurer and they, they don't like doing monthly payments. And I kind of understand because it's not the way things have, have worked for them. So yeah, it, it's definitely uh, something that's, I think it's got some barriers to it. Definitely. 
All right. Well, let's let's keep an eye on it. We've actually got Jimmy on the show in a few weeks' time, so we'll um, we'll we'll kind of follow up with him and see see how they're doing. Um, the next story today is that Munich Re have led a nine million dollar round in Insure. Um, that's but I N S H U R. I'm not going completely mad. Um, we got this story from Banking Technology. Um, despite the fact that Munich Re are actually directly opposite us in our building, their digital ventures team. So I should have got a knock on the door. Um, but the funding is in the form of a seven million dollar in equity funding and a two million dollar credit facility. Um, so the round was led by Munich Re with participation from Mtech Capital. So Insure, for those who don't know it, is a digital provider of commercial vehicle insurance, currently focusing on the rideshare sector. So that would be Lyft, Uber. Um, interestingly, they go as far as sort of black cabs and, and, and more sort of traditional forms of ridesharing, if you like. Um, it has teams in New York and Brighton in the UK. And it's been live in New York for 11 months. And it's recently launched in the UK. Um, and the aim is to use the funding to expand into new territories and product lines, both in America and the EU. Um I just find that a fascinating move to be New York and Brighton and then come to the UK. But um, there's there's a lot to dig into here. So There's a new city in town and it's coming at you. <laughs> it's Brighton, folks. I won't go into the fact that Brighton has no trains for the next 10 days because Southern have shut down the oh, lines. That's true. But they have a big financial services background. If you think about what Amex and everything else is down there, right? Yeah, I'm just being slightly bitter. Um, it does make sense <laughs> logistically from a from a from a lifestyle perspective for them to be down there. Um, but what do we think about the idea that they've just they've got New York City and then the UK? Like interesting decision, surprising. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't work out why. Basically, I can't, I, I can't follow that logic. I'm sure there is some logic. Yeah, I don't know how complicated it is to go from one state to the other, but from what I understand, it is pretty much like a new country. So it may have to be, may have to do something with that. But I think, I think we've got some good local competition on this as well here in the UK. I know the guys at Zigo are doing a pretty phenomenal job and the team is really interesting as well. So it'll be interesting to see to put some more competition in this market and see where it takes us. I mean, state to state is quite hard. So you start, yeah. New York is probably the hardest state out there and you can yeah. go through and group them into categories based on their, um, the regulator per state. So yeah. some are easier than others. If you want to go to Delaware, which is where many folks are set up and everything else, it just does depend on the ind- individual regulator. If you look at what Lemonade have done or Jetty or Slice, and we spoke to lots of these guys, they start in, in more often than not the hard states because they can get those right at the, at the outset. They then can disseminate out to other ones quite easily going forward because you've proven it in the most difficult one. Um, you're absolutely right. Trove, I think we spoke about before, started in the UK because it was easier to get regulated and go live in the UK than it was in North America at the time. And since we've spoken about those guys, they've been, I think, added another eight uh, states just last week. So they're, they're all at it and it's getting easier and easier. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, proven formula to move on but it's a proven formula to go from state to state but to do one state and then go to the uk is my point that like i i, I mean i guess if they've got teams over here already it's an easier move yeah, i was, I was going to ask is there anything to do with the founding team um are there any brits on the founding team i shall have a look because that that could have an effect on it and, and as nigel's pointed out you know the the sandbox system in the uk and the penetration of insurtech as a as a principle as a way of doing things is actually you know if you can come and prove yourself in this market where there's pretty hot competition it's a good testing ground for what you're up to and you can rapidly prototype and i was just going to say that that the regulatory environment is so you know it's it's so flexible and so open here that it's probably a good territory to get involved in um in terms of international expansion i mean from a startup's perspective that how did you find the fca were great and they have been for the the startups that i've incubated as well 
Yeah. Um, so no, no complaints there. And, and yeah, absolutely. I think the, the US is quite an intimidating place to, to build licenses. And we can see Lemonade with all that resource, uh, you know, announcing rollouts. You can't do it overnight. So yeah, it's Leah, did you want to jump in yeah. there? <laughs> Shout um, over them, honestly. Just talk over them. You can't be shy here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was just quite surprised to see them expanding to the UK so soon after launching in the US, because also where are they getting the funding from to expand so quickly? And um, I mean, I guess yeah. that, that's what they're using that $7 million yeah. for, aren't they? But that doesn't feel a lot. Yeah, it doesn't seem a lot to expand to a completely new market, despite the UK obviously being very attractive for fintechs. I was just very surprised to see it so soon. There was actually a debate a few days ago online in which Andy Rear popped into it as well and said, um, ensure New York apart, um, sets them apart is their ability to get the driver on the road quickly, despite the complex regulatory requirements. So there's a whole debate online on Twitter with regards to um, what our thoughts were in general around uh, Munich Re getting into this. And it, it was the, compl- the complex reg- regulatory environment. Yeah, I mean, Munich Re, this isn't Munich Re's first engagement with them either. They um, they, they formed a strategic fa- partnership with the firm back in 2017. So it's nice to see that they've obviously done their homework on this and gone through, you know, it's, it's over a year later and thought at this point, okay, now we'll put some money in. Um, I quite like, as an interesting strategy as well, as far as I can tell, they didn't put any money in to start with. It was more of a kind of quid pro quo at, at that point. I mean, obviously there was some, you know, they were helping them out with various things but actually to then come back and put the money in afterwards is an interesting journey regardless of, sorry, regardless of where they're located or what they or what they're doing the bigger thing for me that i think is really exciting is the different types of taxi uber lyft black cab etc the sharing economy gig economy is continuing to grow at a phenomenal pace and we've got to find ways to cover that so people can continue to consume as they see fit whether it's monthly for your rent or per journey or whatever it may be yeah, I mean, I think, I think, as you said, the sharing economy isn't um, isn't one that's going away. The interesting thing for me is that with this rideshare piece, though, is the the changes that we're seeing in that industry, certainly within London. So every second day, it seems that when I go over Southwark Bridge, the black cabs are protesting. They block, they block. I don't know if anybody's seen this. They block a bridge, yeah. and they um, largely to do with kind of the new entrance to the market and whether they think it's fair or not. Um, then at the same time, you've got Uber, who is coming under fire many different ways for kind of the ways in which they're doing things, treating customers aside, using customers' data, you know, treating their employees. So I, I think as an industry, it's going to be interesting for insurers as well because what they're insuring is changing so yeah. their, their goalposts are moving as well and if, um, I, th- I think that's really interesting because with this I, I I don't know how important the P&L investment is the cash or how much the access to the balance sheet is right mm. because a lot of these programs I'd imagine for, for Ubers and Lyfts are done as massive fleet policies across the world probably and, and you know in a very very traditional way and now that with, with with individual information, individual driver information and and that kind of detail, I think it will be a lot of actuarial work and to say, does it actually make sense? Does it work? What kind of pricing is good? And so think, it'll be, yeah. I think a lot of the Uber drivers, um, certainly from my experience, people I've spoken to don't own their cars. Uber no. owns the car. So they rent the car from Uber. So then is the insurance policy who's who's insuring who and what, where then, you know, do I, you know, there's a kind of thing, if I own my car, I know I need to have insurance on it. If I am renting a car, I know it comes with insurance because the, you see that on a piece of paper. If I'm borrowing somebody else's car, I know I need to get short-term insurance. But, you know, that model of like renting a car from a company that's your, your employer. But it's, it's, it, this is, I think you actually spoke about this on FinTech Insiders quite a while ago, the bubble that's going to burst in vehicle finance as well at some point. I know the FT have done quite a few pieces on this where um, 
one of the things that Uber and others do is enable the driver to get on the road as quickly as possible with a car that's suitable, et cetera, et cetera. So by taking out all those barriers, they can get more drivers on the road. What happens when we start taking those drivers out of those cars we just put on the road? So it's a really interesting conundrum about how we enable this ecosystem over the next couple oh, of years. I think we're a long way away we, from we taking drivers out yeah, of cars. No, no. <laughs> we are, but in an investment spectrum, are we? You know, if you're looking to, to you know, put down $7 million, are you, are you betting on something that's actually future-proof? I, I guess it's going the, the risk's going to migrate a little bit, as we talked about the, the fleet. It'll become more, you know, cyber and PI risk, won't it, on, on who's coding the vehicles and running them. Um, but yeah, but certainly these guys seem to have a lot of traction and this market is wide open for someone to come in it, and disrupt I mean, it. Seven million on the grand scheme of things is nothing, right? If you look at self-driving, they're putting in half a billion at a time or a billion plus. Look at what GM are up to and that sort of stuff. It's... It's a fascinating space. So 7 million is a short-term, uh, interesting, let's see how this thing evolves and let's capture as much as we can uh, in the short term. I could do quite a lot with 7 million, so I don't know. I, I, would, me, always, I would always humbly too. say 7 million is a lot of money. And let's, not, let's, not, take the 7 million. let's not get plutocratic yet. <laughs> All right, well, talking talking of um, facts and figures and large numbers, um, the next story is uh, from Digital Insurance and it is in, in America, InsureTech is big business according to KPMG. So um, Digital Insurance got hold of KPMG's uh, latest Pulse of FinTech report um, and the report notes that InsureTech matured significantly as a sector in the second half of 2018. Um, there were 13 deals, um, each worth more than $100 million over the course of the year. And they also noted that InsureTech looked to more platform-based approaches to offer white-level ser- label services, sorry, and plug into various distribution networks and payment systems. Um, though InsureTech deal volume declined in terms of dollars year over year, there was still more than 240 InsureTech deals over the course of 2018, only about a dozen behind 2017. So that's actually somewhat different to what we've seen elsewhere. We've seen fewer, bigger rounds. So that's an interesting kind of point. Um, and then uh, the the point that I think we could all probably have guessed is that in the US, um, investment in InsureTech grew substantially. Health InsureTech's Oscar and Devoted Health led the way. But then you've got Root and Hippo both clocking in near $100 million a pop. So in that scheme of things, $7 million probably quite small. But um, the Americans do like to outsize things. So <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, interesting. I'm interesting to see the trend being slightly um, reversed there. Yeah, it, it's surprising. I, it, it's one that continues to never cease to amaze me when, on a day like today where you've got three or four rounds being announced, all of reasonable size as well. I still think InsureTech in, in this instance is often the, the the poor cousin to FinTech when you see the money being raised by the folks today. Um, I, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by this. I still see... I'm still seeing less and less activity at the early stage come in in a, I think some of the investors sitting back and going, right, let's see what you can actually do with this sort of stuff. Uh, I was with a founder this morning as an example, and we were all sitting there going, I've been going three years. It's taking a lot longer than I ever thought it would. And I think insurers and VCs alike are sitting there going, this has taken probably 2x or 3x longer than anyone thought. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think as a, I think the Americans, as it's worth, it's worth pulling out that the American industry is so different to a lot of what we see in the rest of the world. I, I'd say the US, but also some of the things we've seen over in China are probably of, of a similar scale. Um, and I think a lot of that is partly to do with, you know, the European investment market, the European political climate, but also the European insurance market. Like we just have a different type of insurance market over here. I mean, you know, those, those guys, the Oscar and Devoted Health, make, raising those huge sums for health insurance and doing health insurance better. Well, I would argue that's only because the 
Americans made such a mess of health insurance the first time round. You know, the, the NHS isn't perfect, but the idea of... of we never know how lucky we are with the NHS. Yeah. It's an amazing service. And I think people take it for granted and, and, and complain about it all the time. You're, you're, you're from Germany and the Netherlands, you live in Germany and the Netherlands. Yeah. They have similar systems there as well, yeah, right? Yeah, all the same. So the US is definitely very different in that. And that's why I think that these players are getting such large amounts of funding because there's just the demand for it that we don't have here in Europe. Yeah, and I think that's, that's that's always a point that we should keep in mind when, when we're looking at the size of these rounds and, and who they are as well. I, I always go back to scale, though. I always, I, I've, I've not changed tone in this one at all. I think the UK or Europe has maturity of market. We're much further ahead in terms of product design, product proposition, and so forth, and what customers actually um, engage and how, and how they want stuff. I think the US has got scale, but I think they're years behind us. And I have a, a debate on an ongoing basis with the folks out there about how they still use agents and that the agent population will dramatically change over years to come. But they, let's be clear, they've got a massive scale. And then you jump to Asia. And I always say, look at the absolute numbers rather than the uh, percentages. Because if you look at, uh, sorry, look at the percentages, not the absolutes. Because if you look at the absolutes, you go, oh, look, there's a million people on a pilot. Yes, but a population of one point whatever billion. So as a percentage, it's probably no different than doing it in the UK. That million over there will be 30,000 here or 20,000 here. So yes, it's impressive to go. They've got a million in a pilot, but it's still, you know, 1% of the overall population of, of their organization. It is one of the mysteries, I think, of the insurtech scene that, that more UK companies aren't being backed bigger. Because if you think about it, as Marjorie's just pointed out, they should have an advantage when going into the US market. Mm. Um, there's no language barrier to start with. We've got a more mature, more competitive system over here. Comparison hit the shores here way before. And, you know, I, I look at Lemonade a lot. I, you know, I, I respect a lot what Lemonade have done, but when they talk about some of the things and, and you know, dress them up as, as super adventurous. I'm thinking, crap, we've been doing that for, for a long time. Maybe I'm maybe I'm not aware of what's under the hood, but certainly from the consumer side, it doesn't look any different. So um, I am really surprised that the UK insurtech scene doesn't get these levels of funding. And I think, yeah, we have to, I agree with you completely. We have to carve out the healthcare stuff. It's a total outlier. Are we simply not going there again? It's a confidence thing. Absolutely confidence thing. It, it, we don't have, I mean, you know, without bringing the outside world into this too much. Look, today we, we've had news that a billionaire is leaving the UK and it's caused a huge for all. We don't have enough billionaires. So when one leaves, it's it's massive news. We don't have that ambition to create people that can- I'll be back though. Set up these huge companies, <laughs> so you know I, I do think it's a it's definitely a cultural thing, and and the, the people in charge of tech strategy in the UK have to change this. We don't have enough people wanting to to, to scale and go go to the US and, and do those things. I mean, even if we pause on the US, I mean, how many of the UK ideas that have originated out of here are have even made it to Europe? I mean, there's no big aggregators in in Spain, for example, or in Ireland. Um, Germany slightly different, but Italy and Switzerland all very agent dominated. Mm -hmm. So it's still a very traditional way of doing insurance, even if you just go across to our neighbors. Yeah, so, it's, it's, it's really a, true. It's a thing that people forget, I think, as well, whenever you're looking at anything to do with financial services and insurance as part of that is cultural differences as well. Like, what do people on the ground, what's actually normal for them? I mean, we've used this example time and time again, but the Germans' love of cash will always always surprises me because you know what why is a country that uh, has Lee is laughing away i read it what <laughs> it's is, so true it's really yeah my friends are embarrassed of me when i try to pay for something by my card with for like five euros they're just like no you can't do this here you have to like pay by cash <laughs> i'm <laughs> embarrassed if i had five euros cash i, I even wasn't yeah, using it i'm just not used I, to I it have, anymore i have no cash on me at all i've not had cash on me for probably about three weeks and i used to walk past the cash machine going i should get 50 quid out or 20 quid out and i'm like now 
I don't bother. I came unstuck in Surrey last week because I jumped into a taxi outside of a train station. And when you take cards, right? And he went, no. And I was like, okay, well, can Regional we, taxi. I was like, can we go via a cash point? He said, we don't have cash point in this town. I was like, what? And it turned out, it, I was lucky, just, just before we pulled away, there was another lady who was going to the same place as I was. So the, the cab, uh, the minicab guy was like, do you mind if you share? And I was like, no, I don't mind sharing. I think I'll have to get out anyway. She's just like, oh, I'll cover you. So I, oh, I owe some lady in Surrey about £8.50. I can see an insurable interest emerging here. You know, yeah. you, need, you need that cover from someone on demand if, if the cab you use doesn't actually right. take cash. So you have so to give your wallet. There's this example <laughs> where the US is way ahead of us. They all, all the drivers will literally grab out a square device and do it in a heartbeat, email you the receipt. That's brilliant. It's frictionless. You get into a cab here and they're like, they've got signs up going, we prefer cash. I'm like, guys, stop. Yeah. It's just embarrassing almost. We are terrible at it here. But anyway, we digress. Back, back to numbers. <laughs> we talked about the US being so big and the UK being small. If I jump back to uh, Urban Jungle, at the very end of the article, Insurance Times talk about it be having raised 1.2 million funding to date. Why is it not 12 million funding to date? Is it simply because the addressable market in the UK is 60 million individuals or 30 million houses, of which a small percentage rent versus 300 million in the US? You talked about fintech as well. Uh, and actually, there's a fundamental difference between the banking revolution, which I know 11FS are massively involved in, is the PRA. We, we don't see a direct carrier. And, and you know, I know, Arslan, you'll probably be pleased about that because it's one less competitor, but we don't have anyone getting directly authorized by the PRA to write off their own balance sheet. There's no micro insurance model. There needs to be a kind of, you know, neo insurer kind of play from the PRA. They released a page, I think, late last year. It hasn't really done much. That's going to make the difference because the minute you can start actually having autonomy to, to take that Urban Jungle 29 pager and make it three pages because no one's going to tell you can't, that's when we're going to see a true change. And I think we're a way off that, if I'm honest with you. So we make it easier for you to get licensed as a new insurance company to take on the full value chain. Very much. Then you become a suddenly more attractive prospect to somebody who's got X number of millions, which they might well give you to... to you know, provide that capital to find that balance. And you're sheet. attracted to a reinsurer and anyone that wants to invest and, and let you take the risk. So, you know. from your view, though, Arsenal, of the innovation, the global innovation competition that's just finished, how have you seen players from the USA versus LATAM versus Europe work out? Has there been this sort of difference in terms of the scale and size of what they're up to in their addressable markets? Look, I think I th I th let's pause on the scale and size question for a bit. But I think the most interesting thing out of that competition was the, just the diversity of the problems some of these startups are trying yeah, okay. to solve. So, for example, we, we had some from Asia, from the Far East that were trying to solve problems very specific to that market. But I think when you work as a place like Zurich and you get access to different markets, the interesting thing was I was sitting there thinking, oh, that thing from Indonesia would really work here in the UK and vice versa. So I think for us, what it did was just show the diversity of that. There are, I mean, we think of how many insurtech startups that are solving very similar problems here. Trust me, that's the case across the world. Yeah. And some have more elegant solutions, some have more cheaper ones. But Does it's that mean there's going to be more failures coming up? Because I think um, Sam Evans said this at a recent event. He said... 2019 will be the year that we see quite a few failures in InsurTech. That is the rumbling. There's a lot of people talking about potential failures down the road. And, and you know, let's not be afraid of that. That's part of taking risk and setting yeah. up something new. We're going to learn a lot. I, I, I love the guys from Guevara. They got up in front of their failure and they talked about it. And I thought that educational piece was was really helpful for other people following in. Um, so we need to encourage that and not be afraid of it. We're a bit afraid of failure in the UK, aren't we? But it's a healthy thing. And, and we industry. should congratulate the people that try. Yeah, 
I mean, to get back just to the point that we were making about maybe the government needs to take a slightly more active role, maybe the regulators need to take a slightly more active role. Our next story um, is actually from um, Gov.uk, and it's that artificial intelligence will be used to tackle insurance fraud and to assess flood damage. So um, the UK government has announced 40 projects which back innovation in the accountancy, insurance and legal services industries and are part of the Next Generation Services Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. Goodness me, that's a mouthful. Um, this is a £20 million fund administered by UK Research and Innovation to support the development and adoption of AI and data technologies throughout the UK service industries. Um, so one of them, the reason we picked this up is a project to develop um, what they call a breakthrough AI technology for the anti-fraud sector. Um, the software is being developed by Intelligent Voice Limited and the University of East London and will combine AI and voice recognition technology to detect and interpret emotion and linguistics to assess the credibility of insurance claims. Um, another project which is sort of relevant to this particular group um, and which won funding is an analysis tool which looks at images collected by drones to assess flood damaged areas. So using a 3D image recognition system to evaluate flood extent and depth alongside impacts on buildings and infrastructure to help with insurance claim assessments. So, I mean, I kind of want to go bless them for trying. Um, we do need more money going into innovation in the UK. And um, those are areas that are of interest. But to me, these feel quite isolated. And I don't know how we take that and make it either industry wide or scale it. I don't know if anybody has a different perspective on this one. Go yeah, on, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, go on. Yeah. Go. No, I fully agree with you. I think um, that the government initiation should definitely try to work with the insurtechs that are trying to tackle the same issues because otherwise we're going to have end up with like multiple solutions and multiple ways of doing things and it's just not going to work out if everyone's trying it in a different way. So if, if we try to like streamline it and get like one common best practice maybe, I think that would help. I'm, I'm all for best practice. Um, I, just for, for transparency, I didn't actually apply for anything. We got notified, a lot of insurtechs got notified of this, and I didn't apply for anything more because I didn't get my ducks in line as opposed to the fact I didn't think it was an appealing thing. My only concern is the process. It's what's always announced with all these things from awards to technician stuff to funding is who's got in, who's got through the door. I want to see the, the pipe because it, I didn't apply and no one knows that. So does it does it affect the reputation of all the insure techs that, that either chose not to apply or didn't apply? This is this is yeah. government backing Just you. Apply. So it's We've really had important. This fight before. No, <laughs> no, you know that's that's the that's the case. And it sh I think it should be these are all the people that that applied. These are why we did and didn't accept them. And again, it's a failure piece. It, there's nothing wrong with applying for a grant or support and, and failing as long as everyone else can find out why they didn't pick you. Yeah, and I mean you can't just apply if you're a one man, two man, three man band, and it's going to take you four weeks to get the bits of paper totally together that they want to fill in. The, the resource requirement for some of these, not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but some of these grants and some of these uh, competitions and, and hubs is it's just, it is more trouble than it's worth. If you've only got two, three of you, one, one of you, and you're trying to build a business. You get invited daily to apply to stuff. You spend hours doing it and then you don't even, I mean, there was one example and I had a bit of a Twitter spat with myself about it actually, but I, I got invited, specifically phoned up and invited to enter this thing. I took four or five hours, you know, you know, specifically tailoring my deck so it would it would suit the requirement, and I didn't even hear that I didn't get in until Twitter. And you just think, come on, you know. So you, you absolutely can't underestimate how many people are trying to get a piece of the action and, and contact you on LinkedIn or by email. I, and the government is obviously a big thing, but they they also create reputation, and it's re it's really delicate. We can't prevent the people that either choose not to getting that reputation issue and. and inflating, you know, all balloons. It's interesting because it sounds a lot like how insurers are treated when we do RFPs. <laughs> it's becoming more and more like a free consultancy nowadays. So it's like, it's it's interesting because 
we get so many opportunities that we work so hard on and and sometimes we just don't know what the decision is or what the what the background of the decision is. Do you want to come is, work so? in our world at any point you want? Because RFPs, <laughs> I hate, always have done, um, just say no sometimes. I mean, I was going to say that this is, it sounds a little bit to me like being unemployed and applying for a load of jobs and you apply for, you spend hours and hours and hours filling in, you know, um, job application forms and then you never hear back again for the same thing. I think to me, it's a certain amount comes back down to, to respect. And so if you are inviting people to um, enter a process and that process does you take is time consuming then I think you want to respect those people that they have done that for you and and all it takes is a letter doesn't even a letter an email you know thank you very much for applying on this occasion where you were not successful that's the first point well, here's why and, well, no 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 and then I think you make it because I think that's too resource intensive for the government say but I think you make the information available if people want it yeah. So don't say that. You know what I mean? We've we, we gone completely off the insurance, but it actually reminds me when I was applying for a work placement during my university years. I remember there was two options: you could either look through the yellow pages and physically write letters on computer and print them out, whatever else. Oh, Nigel, or, you are not the youngest person in the room. <laughs> I am definitely the youngest person. Sorry, pod. Yellow, yellow pages, right? So that's. I'll tell you what it is later. Yellow what? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> don't even go there. Um, or you go and stand in the careers line with everyone else and go, oh, w- wait to see it gets ditched out. I chose the yellow pages. I wrote 210 letters and I got offered four jobs and I got out no end of rejections, whatever else. And I did get the rejections back, back in the day. It's a long time ago. But it, for me, it's a numbers game. You have to be in it to choose what you therefore want to go and do. If I bring it back to insurance and fraud and everything else that's going on, the first thing that's uh, struck me by this by this article was artificial intelligence. I'm getting very tired of everything being badged AI and it meaning catch all. It's almost like digital it was 12, 18, 24 months ago. And AI has so many different um, depths and breaths to it that it, what they mean is voice AI in the first instance. And then it goes on the article to talk about um, visual or analyzing photographs and stuff like that. My second frustration therefore is if I go back to an article that I just Googled that I remember from a while ago, from the 5th of April, 2007, you heard that correct. The government has announced it will trial the use of voice analysis technology to bat- battle benefit cheats. 11, sorry, 12 years ago now, we were talking about trialing the same technology for local government to analyze voice, uh, voice prints to work out if people were cheating for benefit allowance or not. This stuff has been around for ages and it's in a great space and it's obviously got more mature and better and whatever else. It's not really new. No, I mean, I I agree with your point there, but I also think that um, there's got to be a reason why it hasn't taken off. And if you're talking about local governments trying to introduce it for benefits, then, you know, whilst there probably is a significant payoff, they are not the people with, to go back to James's point, the drive and the ambition to see a project through and to see it fully kind of take off in a way that maybe a startup is because it's their baby and they really want it to succeed. And this is also university students. So, you know, kind of, again, there's there's a different kind of... um, group behind it but I mean I I mean we need to move on but I, I just wanted to put the story in there to sort of like I haven't heard that much about this particular area before and it may just be that I haven't been looking and the fact that it made quite a lot of news I mean maybe the government were just trying to like publish something that was good news for once I don't know um but I I was just I was intrigued by it I like the idea of it but also again I've I've, I've seen it go badly wrong so we'll I, see I'll knock it I think it's a really good move fraud is and will continue to be a 
a fundamental part of our industry we need to eradicate. Yeah, I, I think I think what we just do is we we watch and wait and see, and then maybe maybe we see if we can dig some more information out of it. We've got a group of people in this room who should be able to <laughs> to work out whether this has worked or not, right? Ultimately, it'll help the customers, right? Because the lower the fraud is, the cheaper insurance gets. So yeah. what did you say? Fifty pounds per policy on top of everything. Exactly. There we go. How do you do five pounds a month with fifty pounds a policy? We're not going to talk about that. We're going to move on to our final story. Jimmy, I know you want to talk about the final story, Nigel. So don't make me cut it. Um, the final story is that World Bicycle Relief and Lacquer Insurance have joined up in a fundraising partnership. So for every UK rider who takes up insurance with Lacquer, the company will give them £25 free credit and the opportunity to donate some or all of that to the World Bicycle Relief. Um, in addition, Lacquer will match every donation of that free credit pound for pound starting on the 11th of February. Uh, so we know we know about Lacquer's insurance model. We've got huge fans in the room. I'll just give people a quick run through if they haven't um, thought of uh, haven't heard of it before. So it's basically it's run on um, community cooperative principles. So eighty percent of what each customer pays going to help fellow members whose bikes have been stolen or damaged. The remaining twenty percent covers uh, running costs. Um, I won't go into the quotes from the founders um, and the the people at um, RWR. Um, what do we think of this? I mean, it's it's an interesting move. I, I, we've seen in, a growth in insurers working with charities. Uh, you know, Lemonade is an example we've talked about today. Um, there's, I think it's Kinso, which is the charity that when you buy a home insurance policy, you donate to a homeless charity. Uh, we talked about Waggle on the show, the pet insurance who give money to pet charities. It seems to be a growing trend. Is I it? Think. I mean, it's. I think it's been around. I mean, first of all, well done, Laka, because I think this is fantastic, right? Um, I think when it comes to charities and insurers, it's about the scale you have, right? So if you have big scale, you should be able to have impact in terms of changing things or, or making things better. I know Zurich's charity, Zurich Community Trust, uh, I think we've raised something like 60 million pounds in, in the last 10 years. Don't quote me on that, but it's been around for a very long time. I think the interesting thing here is, is directly linking the social impact to the proposition and to the individual. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, I am buying this and therefore... Here is it's like Tom's. Remember those I shoes? I was going to say it's the one thing I it right? reminded me of straight away. Mm -hmm. Where it was, it was a very simple thing. But I buy a shoe, or I buy a pair of shoes, and somebody else gets shoes. Well, for you buy one, versus the other yeah, one. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, but I think, but I think to, to the point that like the lemonade and um, and you know the others who are doing this, people care about that. I had a I had a, a long conversation on on air last week about the importance of brand and reputation, and I think people are increasingly aligning themselves to brands. I mean, look at lack they are going after a tribe they are going after totally a certain agree. group yeah. so it makes sense that they would then you know go broader than that and align them to their their social environmental uh, governmental values because th those, they've already got a people a but group of people who already self-identified yeah. it's really important so it's kind of it's in the same as the waggle with the pet insurance you know you've got somebody who's buying pet insurance for their pet and then giving money to an animal charity so not only is it um, doing your brand the world of good because you're shown to be giving something back but also it's logical and it makes yep. it gives your customers another reason to choose you. I think it's something insurers are actually really good at and especially the mutual insurers. So if you're a farming insurer, you do things in the farming industry that matter to that industry. If you're in a big community on the South Coast, whether it's Zurich or LV or whoever else, you do things in the community that you um, that you work within and where your people are based because it's actually things for where those people live and work. And it's actually, I think it's something that I've actually been quite pleased to engage with and be part of with the insurers I work with. So it's uh, it's something that we do really well, really, really well. This space is really exciting, actually. I think we've got a, a couple of good startups in it. Big shout out to Bigmo as well for what they do and, you know, quality underwriters as well. Lacquer cycle, of, cycle? Yeah, they're again. also cycle, yeah. And, you know, as a space, I think it's, uh, the, the capacity is more readily available for it because it's a known quantity as well, which I think is really interesting. Um, Lacquer's, 
team are doing some really cool stuff. This is a great thing. But at the same time, I, you know, I have to feel like I bring the, you know, the other side to the fence to things. But is there issues in the UK cycle economy, so to speak, that that could have come to the forefront as well? I'd like to see some choice. I mean, that's the, the give back that Lemonade do mm-hmm. um, for all its arguable flaws as well. At least you can kind of choose who you work with. So I'd love to see Lacquer, you know, really branching out and there's, you know, tons of people dying on the road if every year in the UK. If give 70 so, million, I'm sure he'd be able to give you some choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, the give back thing is, is has, has lots of flaws as well, doesn't it? We've got to be careful that we don't create the kind of giving to charity as, as a signal of whether you're a good or bad brand because th- that's not the fundamental. It's about giving consumers choice as well and what you stand for. Yeah, I think the work... Sorry, go sorry, ahead. I fully agree with that. Like when I first read this, because um, I cycle as well, bike insurance and everything, the, my first thought... Do you thought, have bike well, insurance? I do. Oh, yes. <laughs> with Laka, right? Laka, though. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Um, but yeah, one of my first thoughts was, what is this charity? And then I thought, like, it's obviously a really great charity, but also I know cycling in London isn't always great and I would have loved to have, like, have give people a choice to also help the London cyclists. I think I think the choice element is important because then it goes back to that kind of aligning yourself to a brand and you're aligning yourself to Lacquer, which you already have, and then from one step onto that, it's like which you know is is cycling abroad? Is it? Yeah. Uh, is it kind of cycling in the UK? Um, I just I haven't checked it, and I'm sure Toby will correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that this charity is based out of Malaysia, where Lacquer do do a lot of work. Mm. So I think there may be a connection to that as well. I think I think the one thing I'd say is that whoever is doing this, it's it's a great cause. Just don't let it become a gimmick. Right. Yeah. It's agreed. It, it, yep. as, as long as it's meaningful, it's it's exactly the right kind of thing. And 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 I would challenge all the insurers as well, all the larger insurers, to start thinking in the same way. But that's what it's about choosing your partners carefully Absolutely. and making sure that you're not just oh well that charity they look they look good you know whatever. It, what what stops it becoming a gimmick out of interest? Because I like I like your point, Sarah, about it being associated with the thing I'm covering, i.e., cycles. Is it duration? And the reason I say that is I've watched the BA comic relief video probably about 4,000 times at the moment. And it's drilled into me all the good work that they're doing together. And it feels like an ongoing, long partnership. In the same way that Zurich's had charity partners for 10 plus years, uh, we've had the same with Prince's Trust and others like that. But they're not, let's change every year. It's a long-term partnership. You're there for the long haul, not the short haul. I think, I mean, that's that's quite interesting. I think it's, if you're doing it as an afterthought, as a tick in the box, then it's far, you know, and, and, and we see that, right? So large companies will do charity as, you know, will give away X percentage of revenue or whatever. It feels a bit more gimmicky, but when it's really central to the proposition and you can really measure it and you can really see the impact, I think that makes it more real, at least to me. I mean, I think um, there's a lot to be dug into there. We need to wrap up this week's show. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining me. James, is it really quick? Yeah. I just think, you know, we, we don't we no. don't want to underplay the social utility of insurance by adding charity as well. It almost suggests that somehow insurance isn't that amazing safety net that it is. And we need to be more confident about what insurance represents. Okay. Well, that's an educational piece, which we can definitely come back to. Um, that does wrap up the news this week. Thank you so much to everyone for joining me. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you, Arslan? Do you have a Twitter handle or yeah, a website? Yeah, it's at Arslan underscore Hanani and uh, also Zurich.com. Perfect. James? You can find me on LinkedIn and tweeting as well, at James J.W. York. Leah? Uh, on Twitter, at Leah Noninger. And Nigel? At Nigel Walsh. You can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Kachansky. So that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to all of my guests. As always, you can find the show on Twitter, at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. <laughs>